0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade.
2: Curious how?
1: Cue the aroma. Marvelous! Cue the taste.
2: Magnificent!
1: Cue the cucumber. That's That's the refreshing
3: refreshing secret. secret.
1: Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grunton Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024.
0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. The Taliban recently regained control of Afghanistan as US forces withdrew after two decades in the country. Following on from this seismic moment, Back in September, we asked a panel of experts how history can help make sense of more recent events in Afghanistan. Our panellists for this discussion, in the order that you'll hear them speak, are Bijan Amrani of the University of Exeter, writer and historian William Dalrymple, Elizabeth Leake, who's Associate Professor at the University of Leeds, and the SOAS historian Rabia Latif Khan. They were speaking to BBC History Magazine Deputy Editor Matt Elton.
1: How much do you think that we need to understand the longer history of Afghanistan in order to make sense of what's going on at the moment
5: i I, I think it's vital. i mean we've uh, we we think about the the length of its history and also a, a question very much in people's minds its history as a function of its location, its geography, and i mean to a certain extent its ethnic makeup and uh, these things are all very very important because I think they still play a very uh, crucial role in the forces that are acting on Afghanistan as they did in the past and as they do um, to this present day, um, the idea that you have um, neighboring regions who I think throughout history have tried to um, treat Afghanistan as a as a frontier territory, and the fact that the geography of the the region doesn't really offer them. An easy territory to, or an easy line to be a frontier, is a real motor for uh, the way that history has developed in the region and the way that conflicts have developed um, from that problem over the question of frontiers between centers of power. I mean, in, in the past, between Persia or Iran, between the Central Asian states, and between India, and latterly between India and Pakistan, uh, that conflict, which actually I think spills over into. Into Afghanistan in a very compl- complicated way.
2: Yes, I'd, I'd agree with all that, and, uh, and I think it's true of anywhere in the world that you can't understand the present unless you understand the past. You don't know where you are unless you know where you've come from. Uh, but the history of uh, foreign interventions in Afghanistan, which is obviously the uh, the hook for this discussion and and, and the uh, background against which we're talking, um, is one that is haunts. Uh, both the, the former invaders who uh who came to uh, a variety of uh, unsatisfactory ends in Afghanistan whether outright defeat or bankruptcy or uh humiliation and withdrawal uh or um the Afghans themselves who who have a a, a very rich historiography of uh, remembering these foreign interventions and they look on uh, for example, the defeat of the British in uh, in eighteen forty two, uh, or the defeat of the East India Company in eighteen forty two, rather, uh, as we rather look on Trafalgar or the Battle of Britain, it's it's a foundational narrative of the state, uh, and uh, you know the diplomatic area in Kabul today is named Wazir Akbar Khan after the man who massacred the Brits at Gundamak and, and and the Holly Hedge of Jagdalik uh in January eighteen forty two, and, and so you know what the Spitfire and what uh, our brave boys of the RAF and uh, uh, all those sort of, you know, uh, a bag of, uh, of uh, nationalistic ideas mean to a patriotic Brit. Uh, the retreat from Kabul is to, a, uh, to an Afghan, and uh, it's it's totally present. And, and when the Taliban started making communications soon after Karzai was uh, put into power, um, they said, do you want to be remembered as a son of, Dos Mohammed, in other words, the the people who who led the resistance against the British and and eventually regained the government of of Kabul? Uh, Or do you want to be remembered as the son of Shah Shuja, who was the puppet? Uh, Now, the point of that was that uh, President Karzai was a direct descendant of Shah Shuja, like him, head of the Popolzai tribe. And so there's a whole variety of historical ghosts uh, and ethnic fault lines, uh, which are Completely visible and present for every Afghan who talks about this, uh, and which is largely invisible to uh, to outsiders. Uh, and and unless we understand those fault lines, both ethnic and historical, uh, we uh, are apt to fall into the sort of chasm that we've have in the last month.
3: So, just to kind of throw in my two cents as well. I mean, I think without question, it's really important to think about and to trace Afghanistan's history to understand the current moment. Um, But I think we also need to be very careful and nuanced as well in terms of engaging with Afghan history. Um, I think one of the problems that I think has become particularly apparent and perhaps in Western media coverage of Afghanistan um, recently and certainly throughout the 21st century is a kind of essential focus um, on a series of sort of key tropes um, that people, I think, often widely assume sort of define Afghanistan's past and I think what's really important, though, is to, in fact, recognize, I bo- think, both the vibrancy and the texture of Afghan history in the 19th and 20th centuries and before that as well, um, and to take, take a fuller um, and more expansive if, view of Afghanistan and Afghans and think about the ways that Afghanistan is not perhaps just an outlier. I feel like that's been too common of a trope recently um, in sort of discussions and in te- instead thinking about the various kind of political and social dynamics that have emerged in, in, in Afghanistan and in its relationship with its neighbors and in its international relations. And I think only with kind of taking that more textured approach can we more thoroughly understand what's going on now.
4: Um, Yes, um, I'd like to add a brief point here in relation to what Elizabeth said, which I think is very important, because I think we could also use the plural and talk about histories when we talk about Afghanistan, because of course, there are the dominant um, official state narratives of the past. uh, But if we look at historical marginal communities like the Hazaras, the same historical events may be understood in very different ways by different communities in the same country. So um, in seeking to understand Afghanistan's history, I think we also need to understand who who is writing that history, who that history is being written about, and who may be
1: overlooked looked in these historical narratives. That idea of a multiplicity of narratives and histories is really important and really interesting, and I hope to get into some of that in a bit. Um, one of the aspects of that is do you think there are key events in this story that help understand what's happening now? And more importantly, I suppose, do you think there are key events that are often overlooked when we think about this history?
3: To just, I'd say very, very briefly, I mean, I think to kind of think about both what's being said now, as well as Afghanistan's history, I wouldn't say, for example, I'm trying to think how best to frame this. I would say, I think we do need to pay better attention to um, events and developments from the 1960s through the 1980s, um, and particularly kind of the civil war that emerged in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, And I really frame that as a civil war, not just as the Soviet invasion, because there were so many other dynamics at play during that conflict. Um, Something that's really stood out to me um, in recent times is the number of comparisons that were made or have been made between the American withdrawal from Vietnam And the American withdrawal now from Afghanistan. But I think actually a better comparison or a better kind of more nuanced and important lineage is thinking about the events of the 1980s and the ways that those shaped dynamics in the 1990s and up into the 21st century. So I do think we do need to pay more attention to Afghanistan's 20th century history, um, which I feel like, beyond, I suppose, a kind of key coterie of scholars who. Are really doing fantastic and important work on Afghan history. I feel like that that period of time, the mid twentieth century onwards, has not been explored or acknowledged adequately.
5: I, I agree. I mean, a, a lot of that hasn't really been taken fully into um, account. But I, I might broaden um, the idea of what needs to be looked at, and uh, in terms of the attempts of Afghanistan to develop um, a coherent, um, centralized state, or at least a state that, that functions. And I think you see several incarnations of uh, Afghan uh, governments. I mean, certainly since the uh, foundation of, I mean, the first Afghan empire in 1747, where you've got a matrix of problems um, which gets in the way of, um, I think, an orderly development of the Afghan state. So certainly earlier on, um, you have this problem that a big constituent of the first. Um, Afghan empire the, the uh, especially the Durrani tribe so uh, the first afghan empire is, is formed as uh, um, the, the parts of the surrounding empires which are, are, are taken over by the pashtun people under Ahmad Shah Durrani and many of his immediate followers his sort of big constituency they seek many privileges for themselves they don't want to pay taxes Um, It's very difficult to generate um, a line of succession for the monarchy. Um, The state is very dependent on taking taxes from outlying provinces like Kashmir. And that just leads to instability. They can't build up a state whereby you legislate and you get all parts of people benefiting from the state paying into the state. And you you get that problem recurring again and again. Afghanistan can't um, pay its own way. Um, it can generate its own income in, in the circumstances that it finds itself after that period. So that that question of Afghan governance and ways that people have tried to generate governance in a very complicated region. So um, the Amir Rahman Khan in the 1880s and 1890s trying this very. Um, uh, I mean, like Stalin, his nickname was the Iron Amir, rather like Stalin, uh, you know, the Man of Steel. Um, he you know, killed hundreds of thousands of people, he imprisoned many more, he moved people around the country in order to generate strong governance by using terror, but that all fell apart because he could not integrate into a wider international infrastructure or bring in new ideas, new technologies. So the, the, this, this problem of, of the failure of governance has recurred um, again and again, and I think you might even look back to that late period of the 1880s, 1890s, um, as, where some of the problems that start to arise now uh, can easily be seen with
2: governance. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and in a sense, there have been far more periods of history when Afghanistan has not had strong central control than period when it has. Uh, and, and the period of the Iran Amir is, is an exception uh, of, of a very, uh, and Dost Mohammed, perhaps another one, uh, a period of, of, of very strong central control uh, with with orders being taken from Kabul in the provinces. And the Afghans are rather proud of this. You know, there's a whole range of Afghan um, uh, aphorisms about uh, behind every hillock there sits an emperor uh, and uh, every man is a Khan. Uh, the idea that, um, you, that uh, there are these sort of village governments which, um, and, and local governments and tribal governments which have just as much weight as the central government. And and while people uh, will pledge their allegiance um, uh, to a central government, they won't necessarily bail. And you get this, and this is a feature of the historiography from the very beginning. The the very first Brit to study uh, Afghanistan, Mansfield Elphinstone, in the the very first expedition, had a little line. He said, the internal government of the tribes answers its end so well that the utmost disorders of the royal government never even derange its operations or disturb the lives of the people. Uh, So I think, you know, the Afghans like to think of themselves as Yagistan, the land of rebellion. Uh, uh, And and you can look at the periods when strong central control has kept the country together, whether uh, in a colonial form or whether in a, uh, domestic form as, as as very rare and and exceptional moments in Afghan history. So the next thing I want to talk about really is this
1: idea of sort of dominant and overlooked narratives. Do you think there are communities within Afghanistan whose stories um, are either not told or that you think sort of mistold um, by the dominant narrative of what's happened in, in the country?
4: I can possibly chime in here briefly um, as someone who, who's worked with the Hazara community. Um, it's very evident in my interactions as a researcher with the Hazara community that there are issues with how the dominant narratives of Afghanistan are discussed and the place of the Hazara community within these narratives. Uh, a very key example, um, some of the panellists have already mentioned the reign of Abdurrahman Khan, the Iron Amir. That was a very um, troubling time for the Hazara community. They were... So basically what happened was a holy war was instigated by the king against the Hazara community and they were labeled as being unruly, rebellious and disloyal to the king and that's generally how it's portrayed in most accounts of Afghan history. But when you dig deeper, you find that um, many of his soldiers had been raping Hazara women in the central uh, uh, highlands of Afghanistan, where Hazaras are native to. And um, there had been multiple attempts uh, of diplomacy when it came to the Hazaras and uh, engagements with the king to help Um, Mitigate this and work together to bring this to an end. Um, And this very much is um, ignored from the dominant accounts. And what we see is rather than framing what Hazaras did as a resistance, they're portrayed as being. Um, a troublesome community who weren't willing to listen to the king and that has implications in the present also because you see a lot with um, members of the Hazara community I've engaged with and you see it a lot on social media that whenever Hazaras talk about their historic and current grievances, they're labelled as agents of Iran and they're labelled um, as people who are not sincere to the state um, and they're also told that, you know, they don't belong to Afghanistan and they should leave and go elsewhere. So I think the framing of past events um, obviously is can be very problematic depending on who you speak to. And it also has uh, implications for uh, community dynamics in the present, which is very evident um, with regards to the Hazara community.
5: May I um, add to, um, I mean, that that very important um, account from Rabia. I mean, uh, certainly the Hazaras have been one of the sort of leading people who have been oppressed by this attempt by the Afghan state to centralise itself and to... Trying to portray itself as ethnically and I suppose culturally more coherent than it it actually is, Um, and there are I think many others as well who suffered in this um, attempt to um, generalise a centralisation. I mean, one people that spring to mind in particular are the people of um, what's now called Nuristan. It was originally called Kafiristan. I mean, both names which were applied to them by um, I mean the Afghan centre. I mean, it's a very mountainous region in the northeast. Um, now on the area of the borders with Pakistan and it had never been um, conquered by external um, Muslim forces so Tamerlane um, in the um, late 14th century had tried to get into this mountain region and and I think he was sort of lowered down the mountain in a cupboard and it just all all went wrong he he, he couldn't get there Uh, and and the region hadn't been Islamized. there were a culture which included um, animist um worship um sacrifice drinking of wine and um abdul rahman in the 1880s and 1890s made it one of the pillars of his um of his mission to conquer this region And, and he was enormously proud that he was able to do so but i mean that came with great brutality and the extirpation um of a culture there and forced Islamisation. So he, he changed its name from Kafiristan, land of unbelievers, to Nuristan, which means land of land of light. And there was um, a complete loss of um, culture and the capacity of people there to give an account of themselves, an account of their uh, religion, an account of their, their history. And I, I think many other regions have suffered similarly with this attempt... To, to centralise, to also Pashtunistais, Um, so I mean the dominant tribal grouping in the south and the east, the the Pashtuns, um, holding um, the levers of government, um, certainly in the late 19th and early 20th century, tried to extend their, um, not only their control, but their culture, Uh, This was done partly by migration, but also by trying to stop using other languages and to make Pashtun the only language to be used. So in that, um, lots of other narratives were denigrated, especially sort of Persianate narratives. Um, And that is a, a tension which I think has always been present, certainly in the 20th century.
2: I think the deeper you go into any event in Afghan history, the more you find, it has a, a a completely different complexion when you look at it on a regional basis. Um, the thing that I've studied, the first Afghan War, in the British accounts, you you have this impression of a united Afghan resistance. Um, these these uh, you know inverted commas fanatics that uh, uh, were attacking the uh, the British and, and they're seen as an undifferentiated mass uh, from behind the walls, of the contumment. But if you look at the different Afghan accounts uh, of the uprising you have completely different versions of what's going on who's leading it and what's happening depending on 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 who's writing it from which tribal group at which end of the country so the um the Aina Wakei, uh has very much the version of of, of what's going you know from the, the eyes of herat which is completely different from the Akbar Nama, which is uh, uh, Wazir Akbar Khan's sort of panegyric, and which, again, is completely different from the Jang Nami, which is the Kohistani version of events, where an obscure peer called Mir Masjidi, who barely appears in British accounts, uh, is leading the entire uprising, according to the Kohistanis. So uh, it's I, I, this is the, just the one area I know very well, and I'm sure uh, Elizabeth and, and the others will have examples from more recent uh, history, where... where different tribal groups and different ethnic groups from different ends of the country have completely different versions of uh, of recent history.
4: I, if we're talking about historical n- narratives and their pro- proven- prominence, uh, one thing that's come up quite a lot in my discussions is the use of the terminology of majorities and minorities, which I find very interesting um, and is very relevant in the context of Afghanistan because a lot of my research participants would mention that there's never been a census, census in the history of Afghanistan so how can there be claims that certain en- ethnic groups constitute a man- majority and certain ethnic groups constitute a a minority sorry and in the case of the Hazaras the label of minority has been used a lot by non-Hazara Afghan communities and I think it's very important to mention this because um, when we talk about um, narratives or agendas uh, with regards to the Hazara community um, it it affects what it affects the power dynamics in the countries which remain unchallenged and um, those who are perceived as ethnic minorities, in turn, can have less representation in governmental um, institutions. For example, and um, as most of the literature on um, Afghanistan's ethnic communities labels Hazaras as making up ten percent of the country's population, when they themselves will say they make up twenty to twenty-five percent of the country's population, and. Uh, the relevance of this point to the present time that we're in is you know for the, for those who might be aware the Taliban cabinet was recently announced and of the 33 members there wasn't a single hazara and that means there's no hazara representation in the new government and there's also no shia representation in the government so that's how these historical narratives can actually have a implication on on present on, on present circumstances of commun- different communities in afghanistan <laughs> still to
0: come on the History Extra podcast.
2: So it's not that empires have not succeeded in Afghanistan, it's that Western colonial empires in recent times have found it very difficult to rule Afghanistan.
3: This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits
4: different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500E at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SBA. Used
3: under license by FCA US LLC.
1: I want to talk a bit now about religion because one of the aspects of this story that gets talked to a lot about is religious fundamentalism. Is it reductive to see this as being a key and sort of recurring part of this history?
3: I would say, in the, sh- I mean, to put it very bluntly, I would say yes. I think focusing on the idea of religious fundamentalism, I think in a lot of ways is really problematic. And I think it's very, it's extremely reductive. And I think it provides a far too easy sort of analytical tool or trope to use to dismiss both not only religious, but also social and political dynamics within Afghanistan across time and space. Um, I don't think that there's any question that certainly religion and Islam have played an important role in Afghan history, but it's not in any sort of singular form. I mean, we can certainly think about how different local leaders have used Islam to assert their own standing within local communities But equally, I think if we think about events in the 20th century um, and the rise of the Islamist parties um, that became, I think, kind of in the Western media and particularly kind of the forefront of the Mujahideen, the Afghan resistance in the 1980s, I think to describe even their sort of ideologies and aspirations as religious fundamentalism is problematic and misleading because it really ultimately ends up undermining or disregarding the fact that these various kind of religious political leaders had very fundamentally modern aspirations. Um, And I think we have to really recognize that point and then think about how different communities and different leaders and elites and intellectuals, yes, have engaged with Islam and wrestled with its social and political meanings, but have done so in numerous ways and sometimes competing ways, etc. And I think Rabia's point as well, too, brings up the point that we have to recognize as well sectarian differences as well as sort of transsectarian alliances. So I think, I think the, just focusing on the idea of religious fundamentalism um, is misleading and it's reductive. And I, I I don't have a lot of time for it in a lot of respects.
2: I'd entirely agree with Elizabeth. And I think the, um, what is true of Afghanistan is true of, of much of the region that, uh, 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 Western eyes see this as a problem of "quotes Islamic fundamentalism, when there's a whole ragbag of different things going on, um, which are often misinterpreted as religious fundamentalism in better commas. Uh, In in many ways, what I think happened in the last month has strong parallels to what happened in Iran in in 1979, where you had what on the surface looked like a a religious revolution, which certainly brought a religious figure uh, in Iran to power and the Taliban see themselves as an Islamic emirate. Uh, But behind that lay a whole bundle of of social, cultural, and economic grievances. Uh, Why were people rising in Iran against the Shah? It was partly the secret police, partly because of uh, the corruption of the ruling class, partly because of the uh, way that most of the country was not uh, uh, benefiting from the Shah's rule, and the small elite were uh, plundering the country in the eyes of the rural conservative uh masses and i think a lot of those factors were uh, to blame for what happened in the last month there were a lot of people in afghanistan who felt a small elite in kabul were uh, uh devouring resources that were being poured in and, and it was very striking when you went to afghanistan anytime in the last 20 years that despite the how many trillion uh, dollars were supposedly arriving in the country uh, year in year out there wasn't even a single uh, road in the country that didn't have potholes. Even the you know the, from the road from the airport to the presidential palace was was like a a back road in Delhi, uh, and um, so a lot of people felt that, that this was a, a matter of justice against injustice, uh, uh, a decadent minority uh, against uh, 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 a worthy um, the people the people in the villages who who were missing out uh, and. Also, just a general conservatism uh, in the face of, of rapid development. And, uh, and, 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 this, and the word you hear again from supporters of the Taliban is this idea of justice, the idea that the, uh, there was no justice in the old regime. It could be bought. It was the, uh, only justice for the rich. The poor had no access to this. So whether or not one accepts that rhetoric, uh, there's no question that Islamic fundamentalism, as perceived from the West, is is, is is a very, very small part of a much more complicated picture of grievances and and, and motivating factors.
5: And I think, I mean, Afghanistan, I mean, Islam is part of a very complicated matrix of other um, factors which go in to make up people's identities, which people resort to in times of stress. So, I mean, you might um, think of a local identity, uh, an identity linked to um uh, an ethnicity, and then Islam might um, appear at the top of that as another identity to which you have to um, go to if you feel threatened, and and that becomes a sort of unifying factor or, or a factor that that can be used to motivate people in in order to take up a cause. So I think one has to bear that in mind. That there are many sort of interlocking things which needs to be taken into account.
1: One of the narratives that gets told about Afghanistan is that it is what's called a graveyard of empires. Um, Is that true? And um, what do you think the reasons for that are, if it is true?
2: So there have obviously been many, many empires which have ruled whole or parts of Afghanistan perfectly successfully. Uh, If you go back far enough, the Kushan Empire um had had it it's capital under under Bagram air base and uh uh full of treasures of, of, of gorgeous roman glass and uh beautiful uh, indian ivory furniture and uh, uh beautiful gold objects uh, and it ruled um deep into uttar pradesh and uh, and india uh from there the the uh Various medieval dynasties, most famously, the, uh, I suppose, the Lodis and then the Mughals. Um, Kabul um, was the base for Babur's invasion of, of, of India. Um, and uh, Kabul proved an extremely lucrative base for Babur. Uh, then again, you know, other Timurid empires of Shah Rukh in Herat and so on, um, presiding over a golden age of, of painting and architecture and colleges and education, Gohashad, Bizard, all the great names of, uh, of Western Afghan history. So it's not that empires have not succeeded in Afghanistan. It's that Western colonial empires in recent times have found it very difficult to rule Afghanistan uh but that said as as we've been discussing so have so have most domestic uh afghan rulers found it difficult to <laughs> to rule afghanistan it's not a uh, it's not a, a problem only faced by colonial rulers uh, and we are seeing signs even now uh that the taliban uh, are going to have uh, a lot of trouble uh extending their authority um or maintaining centralized authority they're fighting among themselves we've uh, heard of um uh, uh, there's still continued resistance in Panjshir uh, and um, demonstrations around the country. So uh, it, 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 it is a difficult place to rule. Full stop. It's not. It's not only uh, colonialists who, who, who've had that problem. Uh, and so you, yeah, I, I mean, his, history is full of very successful empires which have ruled Afghanistan. But it's certainly true that the East India Company, the Raj, the Russians, and the Americans all left with a bloody nose, though none were defeated outright. And this is the point Bajan was making earlier. It's that uh, the, the real problem is that Afghanistan can't finance its own colonization. If you invade Bengal, uh, there are two harvests a year, there are spectacular natural resources, uh, and there is an extremely rich merchant and, and uh, middle class. Uh, you can tax uh, and you can use that money to recruit soldiers uh, and you can and you can make a profit out of colonialism as the british and the east india company very successfully did particularly if you bring opium into the trade and turn yourself into a narcotics uh, uh, empire <laughs> run on the, run on selling uh selling uh narcotics to china um but um more recently uh the the east india company which is making a massive profit out of its operations in bengal and Bihar, suddenly went into the the red when it invaded Afghanistan, because having to support uh, an army uh, in a very distant place from its center of operations, uh, transport food and weaponry over vast distances with the entire Sikh army between you and your base, uh, and build forts and roads uh, is an extremely expensive business. Uh, Later on with the uh um, uh, with the russians uh it famously broke the soviet economy or helped break the soviet economy the cost of uh continual fighting in afghanistan and finally now with the americans it wasn't in a sense that they'd actually been militarily defeated and that uh uh, the americans could not carry on resisting the taliban that it was it was a, a, a domestic politics found it too expensive both in terms of cost and body bags and the fact that it just simply seemed to go on forever uh, uh, and, uh and and eventually just joe biden made the, made the decision to pull the disastrous decision uh to pull the plug uh, but it wasn't actually a defeat so it, it's 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 the cost and the difficulty of financing it as Bijan said earlier rather than the outright military impossibility of governing it that in the end seems to uh, cause all these different empires to come to grief.
1: Do you think that, um, we're obviously talking in Britain here, do you think that we need to understand the British Empire's involvement in this story more fully um, and perhaps think about what it says about our own history as well as that of Afghanistan?
5: My view, I mean, to add to what Willie says earlier about the um, uh, impact that the British-Afghan wars have had on Afghanistan and the... Um, feelings uh, that Afghanistan feels towards uh, the outside. I mean, I think one of the most important uh, long-term impacts that that still has a huge um, presence to this very day um, are the frontiers um, that Britain essentially imposed on Afghanistan in the course of the um, late 19th century, um i mean Br- britain was responsible for the drawing of the northern frontier with um the then russian empire um, along the Amudaria river which um, is best known in britain as the oxus but also um, more famously the Durand line which forms the um it's nearly sort of 1700 um, mile long frontier between um pakistan and afghanistan um And that frontier was really drawn up. It it was drawn up in 1893 with the cooperation, a very grudging cooperation of uh, the Iron Amir, Abdul Rahman. Um, He recognized it would be good to have a clear demarcated frontier between Afghanistan and the British Empire in India because he could then say, I'm going to try and control this bit with all of my might on my side. But the frontier uh, was really drawn up with the convenience of the defense of British India in mind and it's it cuts through um pashtun peoples it divided um sort of tribes villages uh, in half and the frontier since then has just been a deep bone of contention um between afghanistan and, and uh, its neighbor so originally british india but later on uh, pakistan and um the feeling that the pashtun peoples who in the pashtun narrative were the i mean foundational tribe of afghanistan because they were the ones who used their military power to conquer their neighbors and develop the state they feel that their people were cut in half by this line and that they should not be on the side of pakistan they need to be reunited Uh, And Pakistan, of course, who has this existential fear because it's it's this sort of group of provinces brought together uh, and they fear any part of of their nation being lost. So they've always been very worried about this irredentist idea that bits of Pashtun areas would go back into Afghanistan. If they lose that, will they lose Balochistan or Kashmir? Um, And that's always led to this very hostile um, attitude beward, uh, between the two countries, and certainly in the 1960s, there was a moment where Pakistan shut down the frontier. I mean, uh, there had been sort of military conflicts and so on. And Afghanistan at that moment was unable to export its goods, and it was thrown back into the arms of the Soviet Union. And it was from this period that um, Soviet influence really began to develop in a very strong way in Afghanistan. Um, And so that's just a a lingering footprint of um, the imperial impact where Britain developed a a frontier that was really good militarily for its defense, but no good for the surrounding nations. And it threw Afghanistan back onto the arms of the Russians. And that, of course, leads to the events of of the Soviet invasion and, and the civil war in the 80s. And uh, the the problems with the frontier are still felt today.
4: No, just a very brief point. Um, Bijan basically said it um, just about the um, current um, issues that still persist with that border because of the border tensions. Pakistan saying that that's its uh, western border and Afghanistan not acknowledging it as a border. Um, People's livelihoods on both sides of that area are impacted very regularly because when there are border tensions, the border is closed on the Pakistan side. So traders are impacted and people who have families on both sides of the border are obviously regularly impacted by that. So, you know, a a legacy of the British empire going back 120 years ago has quite uh, severe implications for people
3: living in that region now. Just to to follow up on Rabia's point too, I think there are kind of just two other really brief points I would also want to bring in into this conversation um, about, I suppose, the legacies of British imperial engagement with Afghanistan, but also suppose, I mean, this is part of a broader global story as well. I mean, I think firstly is kind of are the British legacy, the kind of the legacy of British colonial framing of Afghan politics and society as so as tribal and how in British imperial usage, the word tribe kind of expanded to mean not just a certain type of kind of patch of kind of kinship ties or kind of, social organization but how the term became increasingly used pejoratively or to imply that a society was backwards or incapable of governance or so-called civilization Um, and that's certainly i think one of the key reasons why we keep talking about afghanistan as being tribal that is a consequence of british imperial um terminology and british imperial engagement with afghanistan but also too i mean that's a term that then has also been used globally thanks to colonialism, but again, has these kind of implicit backwardness or kind of this this kind of assumed backwardness of of communities that are called or termed as tribal. Um, So that's one point. And then I think the other point that I think we need to remember, too, is thinking about about kind of British influence on the power dynamics within Afghanistan and specifically um, so many of the historical narratives that have focused on um, ethnic Pashtuns within Afghanistan. And I think these are points sort of that Rabi and Bijan have both touched on to some extent, but thinking about because British colonial officials placed so much emphasis on the ethnic postures that they encountered, I think that's one of the key reasons as well um, why I suppose maybe scholarship hasn't caught up, and I think or popular conversations also perhaps have not caught up so much on recognizing Afghanistan's fundamental diversity. Um, as well as recognizing the multiple experiences and histories of those other communities um, and kind of recognizing that Afghanistan, like any other state, is, is you know, multi-ethnic um, and it has this diverse, kind of this diverse population.
5: Can I just add um, one point to that on the question of power dynamics? I mean, I, I think all of that's quite right. And, uh, I mean, one reaction, which certainly was very evident, I mean, following the first Afghan war, very much in the time of Abdu'l-Rahman and, and, and beyond, uh, was a sense in Afghanistan that, very much propagated by Abdu'l-Rahman, that um, we are we are hemmed in by Western empires. We have the British Empire, which is a non-Muslim empire, to our south and east. We have a Russian Empire, again, a non-Muslim Empire to the north. And, I mean, you have a, a Shia Persian Policy on the West. And there was a sense in Afghanistan that it was the last unconquered Islamic territory. And it's a response to that sense of being hemmed in by these imperial presences was um, a developing isolation and a fear of actually developing itself or engaging with or taking any of the technologies of the surrounding. Uh, empires for its own benefit. And that went on for a long time. So Abdul Rahman, he didn't want to develop um, roads or rail links in the country, because he thought that that would make the country more attractive uh, for invaders. And he was very, very hesitant about the idea of bringing in new educational ideas into the country, because that could destabilize the order that he'd managed to uh, develop, or his interpretation of Islam that he was using as a tool to to hold the country together and i mean the isolation had been developing partly because of the collapse in trade routes which again was a consequence of um, developing imperial presence and development of sea routes thanks to the british empire and overland russian trade routes Um, but i mean with with this development of the imperial presence in afghanistan's borders there was just an isolation at a vital moment which meant that it Fell behind in terms of the development, uh, material development of the Kid of people. And it's sort of been very difficult for it to catch up with that and get over the fear that development equals um, a surrender of um, sovereignty or a danger
1: to sovereignty. Do you think that what's happened over the past sort of month or so um, in some way signals the end of the American century? Uh,
2: My feeling is that it it, it certainly. Adding to the impression uh, that uh, American influence is is diminishing, uh, as we all know, China has been very active um, uh, with the Taliban. Uh, the Mezanat Copper Mine is is due to reopen. Uh, three times now the Taliban have made um, televised announcements about how China is their best friend and uh, uh, China has uh, offered in recent days to supply vaccine. Uh, they're talking about including Afghanistan in the, in the Belt and Road project. Uh, and yes, there's a very strong impression. Uh, I mean, you know, it's early days yet and, and, and things may not work out as planned as they often do not in Afghanistan. Uh, but... Uh, uh, There is a very strong feeling that uh, uh, American influence uh, and hegemony over uh, Afghanistan and maybe also Pakistan uh, is is diminishing fast, and that the Chinese are replacing them as as the principal allies of of, of both countries. Uh, And the they've chosen a very different model to the American uh, model of 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 installing a a puppet and and trying to. puppeteer a, a, a liberal democracy um, they're uh, offering loans they're threatening or so offering to build uh infrastructure uh and road networks uh and to become a major economic partner uh, in return for uh, mineral extraction uh and that may be a deal that the um afghans can live with uh famously some of the more successful uh invaders in history who, who dealt with the Afghans did so by paying them. Uh, the, uh, Nadir Shah, uh, going off to raid Delhi in 1739, um, from, uh, from Isfahan, uh, paid the, paid the Pashtun, uh, tribes on the way out and he paid them on the way back again, uh, and, and got his loot home. Uh, and, um, it, that that may well be a model that works so yes i mean it's it, it's obviously far too early to say to say but it does feel i mean there's obviously been no question of the rise of china's economy uh over the last 20 years has been astonishing and the, and the speed with which it has not only uh developed itself but uh it extended its economic influence over many many parts of the world including africa including pakistan including sri lanka uh the growth of the a string of pearls through the Indian Ocean, the deep water ports, the uh, places where Chinese nuclear submarines can base themselves, uh, is the principal geopolitical change in the world in our lifetime. And uh, the impression is that the last few days has, has speeded up that process, uh, as reflected by today's headlines, that uh, Britain, America and Australia uh, have a new defensive pact aimed obviously against China. So yes, I, I I do feel that this is this is not a new thing. This is uh, this uh, this has been going on for two decades, but it, it feels like an acceleration. Yeah. Finally, when people look at those headlines or when they think about the history of Afghanistan,
1: what stories and what narratives and what new ways of thinking would you like them to bear in mind uh, in the future?
3: I mean, I feel like there are so many. I suppose, histories of Afghanistan that have yet to be told. Um, And I think particularly if you think about kind of comparatively, um, you know, we've referenced South Asia and the British Empire in South Asia. I think particularly if you compare histories of Afghanistan um, or Afghans to those of India or Pakistan, I mean, there are so many fewer histories. But I think, and I think there's, that has a lot of consequences then for the sort of knowledge that keeps getting recycled around Afghanistan. But I think, One of the points that I'm really keen to bring forward or to re-emphasize is, I think, firstly, that Afghanistan, particularly in the 20th century, has had a fundamentally global history. And I don't mean that in terms of being the so-called graveyard of empires, but in terms of the ways that Afghan political elites and intellectuals have always thought globally and have acted worldwide. So Afghanistan was a member of the League of Nations. It was an early joiner of the United Nations. And it was an active member in other major international political organizations in the 20th century, like the non-aligned movement. So I think in that respect, it's important to recognize that, especially in the 20th century, Afghanistan is not an outlier to the international system. You know, and it certainly sat alongside other Afro-Asian countries in terms of you know, taking part in the fight against colonialism, in kind of pushing forward struggles for decolonization and in taking part in sort of international discourses around human rights um, and the rights of states. So I think the fundamentally modern aspirations of many Afghan elites and intellectuals and communities is something that's really been overlooked, both in the scholarship and in kind of broader dialogue. Um, And I think as a consequence that serves to sort of reemphasize instead these narratives of Afghanistan as somehow exceptional. Um, And so I think we need to question that exceptionalism and to further reintegrate Afghanistan's stories and past um not only to our modern thinking but into histories of the international system in the 20th century as well as into histories of south and central asia
4: and um, i just add a brief point about going back to our earlier conversation about religious fundamentalism and religion um obviously the taliban are only one segment of society they don't represent the whole of afghan society and thinking and when we talk about islam and muslims in afghanistan we need to be aware or to understand that um uh, uh, Muslim Islam in um, Afghanistan is not a monolith. There are various Muslim communities. Sufism was practiced historically in Afghanistan. You have sizable Shia and Ismaili populations as well. So I think the need to uh, to to not see Islam and the Muslim communities um, in in Afghanistan in such um, black and white. Um, terms and understand that there's more nuance needed when we we look at religion in the context of Afghanistan and, and even the acknowledgement of, of the country's pre-Islamic history, which a lot of people aren't aware about, the Buddhist and Zoroastrian history of Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan was a centre of Buddhist learning and um Unfortunately, now the non-Muslim communities of Afghanistan are dwindling, but there were thriving Hindu, Sikh and Jewish communities also. So that's that's something to bear in mind. I think.
5: Yes. I, I mean, what I was going to say follows on very nicely from what Rabia said. And it's just two little vignettes. Um, firstly, a reminder that Afghanistan until the 1980s was a wine producing country uh, until the Mujahideen blew up uh, the, the, the plants. Um Uh, Sir Thomas Holditch, the British geographer, described Afghan wine as a muddy sort of champley, but the the greatest person to appreciate it was um, Babur, the conqueror um, of India. And this vision of this great Muslim monarch sitting in uh, the gardens of Kabul, which he so loved, drinking wine and improvising poetry, it's an illustration of what Rabia says, is that um, the way that Islam was practiced and people's approaches towards Islam um, are not what people expect and are very varied throughout Afghan history. And just to add to that, who built the biggest Islamic college or foundation in the west of the country in Herat? It was a woman, um, a lady called Gohar Shad in, in the Timurid period. And it was under female patronage that uh, Islamic scholarship flourished. And it's, it's, it's those two points that Islam isn't a lot of bearded men telling people to stop doing things. Uh, Islam in the country is uh, creative, mystical, spiritual, artistic, um, full of dance, music um, and philosophy. And I think that that's something that needs to be remembered as much by the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, as outside the country as well.
0: Our panellists for today's discussion were William Dalrymple, Rabia Latif Khan, Elizabeth Leek, and Bijan Omrani. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Christina Ezrahi will be sharing the story of one of the most famous ballerinas of the Soviet era.